Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We're going to start a series, a very short one, over the next two weeks in Romans chapter 13, and we're going to talk about authority. The extent and the limits and the nature of human authority and of divine authority. Human authority this week, divine authority next week. And what I'd like to do is read the entire portion of Scripture, which is the chapter of Romans that you have as chapter 13, and then we're going to go back and look at the first section today and the next section next week. And as we do that, I want to remind you that we are studying this book as a book. It's one complete unit. Paul didn't write individual chapters and mail them off to the churches. He wrote one complete letter, one complete inspired work. And it fits in with a number of other complete inspired works in an entire New Testament, which then fits into an entire Bible. And, and so I'm going to be reminding you of that this morning as we begin looking at this very important chapter over the next couple of weeks. So please follow along as I read Romans chapter 13. This is the word of the Lord. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not... Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The light is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is God's Word. Romans 13. Let's look at it in three different ways. Where it fits what it means, and how it applies. Where it fits, what it means, and how it applies. To begin with, we want to talk about the context, and that's what I mean by where does it fit. Where does Romans 13 fit within the book of Romans and within the New Testament and within the entirety of Scripture? 
You see, Paul didn't just sit down to write a section of his epistle to the Romans on biblical authority and submission to government independent from everything else that he had been writing to the Romans. And there is a temptation, I would say, on the part of some who are committed to the expositional preaching of God's Word to get so fixated on the details that they end up losing sight of the big picture. And what can happen is that the text is delivered to you then on a Sunday morning as something that has been summarily dissected and identified, uh, like a cold, dead specimen on some stainless steel tray put before you with every single organ labeled and flagged, and everything is broken down and identified, but it doesn't really exist as a living thing anymore. Oh, you know what every part of the Greek syntax means, and every word has been properly interpreted, but the life is gone. It's also possible to become so fixated on one thing that you lose sight of the big picture. And that's not just focusing on the trees instead of the forest. It's focusing on the tree and then like the tree bark and like the bugs on the tree bark and, and, and the hairs on the legs of the bugs of the tree bark on the trees of the forest. And then before long, you're completely lost because you've gone so, so deep into it that you've got no orientation anymore. This morning, what I want to do is I want to put Romans 13 in its proper context for us so that we see that Paul is not just talking about submission to authority independent from everything else. Romans 13 is part of the last section of the book of Romans. You can put an arc over it, if you will, sort of an arc that begins at Romans 12 and goes all the way to the end of Romans 16. There are five chapters that make up what you might call the practical application of everything that was given to us in the theology of chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 1 through 8, for example, talk mostly about man's sin and hopelessness and the Redeemer that we have in Christ and all of the joy that comes from being found in Him. And the fact that as Romans 8 begins, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You could write the words, no condemnation over all of chapters 1 to 8, and go out from here just rejoicing in the fact that everything has been settled in Him. And then Romans 9 to 11 clarifies for us where the Gentiles fit in, because if you read your Bible up until that point, all you had was the Old Testament. And you would become quickly convinced that if you were a Gentile, very little of this applied to you. And so Paul clarifies that, no, those who are truly Israelites are those who are in Christ, the true Israel, the real Israel. Oh, there is a national Israel, yes, and he describes them in detail, but grafted into that is the spiritual Israel, those who are in Christ, equally participants of all that is promised in that covenant. And now at the last part, from 12 to 16, you get all the practical implications, and that's why he begins chapter 12, you'll remember, by calling us to be living sacrifices. So let me give you five words for five chapters so you know where this fits in. Just five words for five chapters. Number one is the word trust. That's what I apply to chapter 12. Chapter 12 is about trust. You have to trust God, especially and most specifically in areas where you would be tempted to take vengeance. As we discussed last week, it's a very natural thing to want to take vengeance. It is wired into us. It is part of our DNA. And I might add, it's not part of your sin nature. Oh, your sin nature has corrupted it, but it's not part of your sin nature. Believe me, justice is not sinful. Justice is 
an attribute of God. He put that into you. The challenge is how you want to exercise justice and how oftentimes your justice and his justice don't align. Your justice feels better, though, because it's more like revenge. It's more like retribution. Uh, the second word I would apply, and that's for chapter 13, is submission. If we're going to trust God and do everything he tells us to do in chapter 12, then we're going to need some protection. We're going to need some help. If we're going to live chapter 12 Christian lives, we're going to need chapter 13 help. The submission that we submit to here is the submission to a process, a, a submission to an established authority by God. So that when we're not taking vengeance on our own, when we are not rushing out to vindicate ourselves, when we are not exercising vigilante justice, we instead have to give to somebody else. And then when we give it to her, the authority is set up by God. Oh, that brings us into chapter 14, and the best way to describe that is love. A love in chapter 14 is, is the love that we extend to those who don't think the same way that we do. There is going to be conflict within the church. There's going to be people of differing opinions. And so if love does not pervade everything, if, if love doesn't cover everything, then the body isn't going to function the way God intends for it to. Love is going to require us to be patient. Love is going to require us not to judge one another. Love is going to require us to forfeit some rights when we're with certain people. Love is going to cause us to be the kind of place that strangers and Visitors come and observe and say, yeah, there's something very different about these people. After that, you get from trust in chapter 12 to submission in chapter 13, love in chapter 14. Chapter 15 is all about service. That's the fourth word, service. Christ came to be a servant, and we are in turn to serve others, and we, we serve one another by not putting our own interests forward, but to allow others to be cared for instead. And at the end is thankfulness. Paul gives a whole chapter 16 just to be thankful. Thankful for men and women, almost equally in that chapter, who have served with him in ministry, who have provided for him, been his patrons, suffered alongside him, risked their necks for him, as one couple has described. I love that. Been to prison with him, served him in every capacity. So fitting Romans 13 within the big picture of the application it is the submission to authority that is important because we are not going to take justice into our own hands. We trust God, we submit to the authority, we love our brothers, we serve the church, and then we are thankful to those that God allows us to minister with. It fits within the second part of Romans, chapter 12 through 16, within the greater picture of the book of Romans, which is all part of the epistles in the New Testament which is part of the New Testament as a whole, which is part of God's Word as a whole. And God's Word as a whole has one story. It always has from start to finish. It is all about the creation that God did when it was perfect and complete, to the fall when sin came in and the world was cursed, to the redemption that comes in Christ to make all things right again, to the resurrection and the restoration when bodily, physically, all who are His will be given those new bodies to experience the new heavens and the new earth in absolute joy and glory forever. That's a wonderful ending to the story, isn't it? So let's understand where this fits in with the big story. Back to Romans 13. We've talked about where it fits. Let's talk about what it means. This is broken down into several parts. The, the first part is a command in verse 1. So follow along as I read verse 1 of chapter 13. It says, 
let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Very simple introductory statement. What does it mean? Well, he says here that every person, literally every man, every, every member of mankind needs to be subject, that they need to be under the governing authorities. This means that it is our obligation as believers to submit to the governing authorities all that which we would be tempted to vindicate on our own. And I have to confess that this is probably not something that most of you are struggling with because we don't live in a generally unjust society for most of us. Most of us don't, don't live in a world that is filled with corruption and injustice. Most of us are law-abiding citizens. It hasn't always been that way. In fact, um, I was reading earlier this week in this wonderful book called A World Lit Only by Fire by William Manchester. Highly recommend it. Wonderful history book. But he says this about what it was like in the, in the Dark Ages. He says that people were basically peasants laboring, almost to the point of exhaustion and death sometimes. And then he says this about their situation. Quote, surrounding them was the vast menacing and at places impassable Hercinian forest, infested by boars, by boars, by the hulking medieval wolves who lurk so fearsomely in fairy tales handed down from that time, by imaginary demons and very real outlaws who flourished because they were, they were seldom pursued. Although homicides were twice as frequent as deaths by accident, English coroner's records show that only one of every hundred murderers were ever brought to justice. Moreover, abduction for ransom was an acceptable means of livelihood for skilled but landless knights. One consequence of medieval peril was that people huddled closely together in communal homes. They married fellow villagers and were so insular that local dialects were often incomprehensible to men living only a few miles away. That's what it was like for much of the history of the world was people huddled together just for safety and just to stay alive so much so that you didn't even venture to the next town your own dialect surface and the way you talked to one another and you became unintelligible to your neighbors that's how internally focused they were why because there was so much injustice in the world the world was so dangerous now, brothers and sisters we don't live in, in that kind of world and we don't live in a world like that, that is completely concerned about survival. Instead, we live in a rather peaceful, comfortable world. By God's grace, we still live in a nation that is, that is ruled by law. And those of you who are here today submit to that law. I also don't need to teach you about submission because you are all generally submissive to the law. You all came here today in your car and you made sure you had your driver's license with you because it's the law. Well, you made sure you had a driver's license, and then you had it with you. Generally speaking, I'm sure each and every one of you obey the rules of the road coming over here. You drove on the proper side of the street, not on the other side of the street, just claiming your liberty and freedom. When you came across a traffic light, if it was red, you stopped. If it was green, you went. If it was yellow, you either sped up or slowed down, depending on your style of driving. 
But in every case, you follow the rules. You understand what that's like. I don't feel like that's necessary here. What's necessary is to help us understand what happens when authority bumps up against injustice, and that's going to be the focus of our application at the end. What happens when authority bumps up against injustice? When do we need to obey God and not man? That will be our focus as we look at the application. But as we go back to the meaning of it, let's just understand in its context that he is saying that as a general rule, we are able to follow the authorities that God has placed over us. He has set them up. The authority that he has established is an authority that comes from him. Therefore, the next verse would be the warning. The first verse is the command. The next verse is the warning. He says this, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. The word instituted is a word that means to set up, and the word resist means to go against what's set up. And the warning here is partially a warning for uh, the righteous ones, but it's really more a warning for the unrighteous. It's a warning for the people that would be brought to court because of the crimes committed against Christians who would not take vengeance for themselves. I think sometimes this verse is, is, is presented to the church like, like you all need to be careful that you don't disobey the rules because if you resist it, you're going to be in trouble. And, and that's partly true, but again, it's, it's not the prevailing problem. I have to tell you, I don't spend very much time counseling people in our church out of their pattern of being a vigilante. I am rarely called upon throughout the week to go down to the police station and bail one of you out because you've once again been arrested for taking the law into your own hands. It isn't typically the, the challenge we have. What you have here are the people that are resisting the authority established by God and in so doing creating havoc in the lives of the people that Paul is trying to minister to. And so, so he says to these Christians, submit to the authority. Submit to the authorities around you and let them fight for you because they have been established by God. If you're going to trust him, like I say in chapter 12, then you need to submit to those authorities as explained here in chapter 13. So there is the command to do it, the, the warning in case you don't, that you are resisting God. Thirdly, let's look at the reason for that. It's in verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. I'm not concerned about the wrath of God being poured down upon a child of God because a child of God is not going to be subject to the wrath of God in the eternal sense. Here, the, the wrongdoer in mind is the one who persists in their sin and their rebellion against God, the one who persists in being the oppressor against those who are oppressed, the one who is told to fear authority is the one who is guilty of the very crimes that Paul says you as a Christian might suffer from, but still have to submit to God. This is a warning not so much to the Christians, but to the ones who will be brought into court because of what they did to Christians. You'll notice here that if you are a law-abiding citizen, you shouldn't have to worry about the authorities, generally speaking. 
if you do what God has instructed you to do through them, then that they are not a threat to you. However, if you do break the law, and if you do become the oppressor, and if you do find yourself guilty of the crimes that Paul is talking about that some of these Christians were suffering, then you need to be afraid. Because the authorities set up by God do not use the sword in vain. What does that mean? It means they don't punish in vain. They don't execute judgment in vain. They have the authority to do it. God has given them the authority to use the sword, sometimes quite literally, even in capital punishment. That they are the ones instituted by him to exercise his righteous wrath. The wrath of God here isn't really the wrath of God that comes upon someone at the end in the final judgment. It's the wrath of God that comes upon the evildoer through the agency of human authority. So, beloved, there is justice in this world as exercised by those who are in authority, and it's God who's established them. And for us as believers to submit to that is a sign of our trust in Him. Now, let me answer the objection that's in your mind right now. You say, well, pastor, this is not a, this is not a just world. There, there are so many examples of injustice. We see them every day around us. To that, I would say, yes, that's true. In this fallen, cursed world, justice will never be perfect. But I would remind you, first of all, you're not the one to make it perfect. And secondly, that at the end, there is also a judgment, a second judgment, a universal judgment, a perfect judgment, a judgment where... Every sin is either dealt with as we have seen on the cross or it is dealt with in hell. And so I'd appeal to you this morning, if, if this is new to you, if you haven't really thought about that before, maybe you're struggling with that reality today, can I encourage you just to hear that word as a blessed announcement of your hope in Christ that can be had if you put your trust in Him? He, he comes to you with nothing but an offering of mercy and grace, because all of the payment for the sins of all who would ever believe in Him have been paid for once and for all. And as He, he draws in those who put their faith in Him, it's with this winsome, wonderful, gracious, merciful, compassionate appeal that you don't need to bear the weight and the load of your sin any longer. It can be rolled off onto Him absolutely and completely dealt with once and for all. Every sin that you've already committed, the ones you're committing right now, and even the ones you will commit. Because to him, it is done start to finish, beginning to end, birth to death. He sees it all. He stands at the top of the skyscraper and sees the parade from start to finish. You're down at ground level just seeing it pass one by one. He understands everything that has happened, and he still calls you simply to embrace the reality that that sin has been dealt with once and for all by Him. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. So that in the final judgment, you don't stand before Him saying, well, I, I wasn't as bad as this other person, and after I got saved, I tried really, really hard, and, and, and I earned a few good credits here, so I'm hoping that might put me in a slightly better standing with you. He says, everything you bring is garbage anyway, and it all gets swept away, and he says, the only thing I'm ever going to evaluate is the righteousness that you could never earn, that was given to you, wrapped around you. It is the righteousness of Christ. That's the only thing I'm going to look at in determining whether or not you spend eternity with me in glory. 
And, and so the invitation to you this morning is not a call for you to do anything, but to receive what's been done for you. And that is why we're told in the Scriptures that the only prerequisite for salvation is to believe, to receive what has been done for you already. So remember that when you're struggling with justice. Oh, there will come a time where, where every injustice is made right, and everything that has been done to you in this world, as painful as it is, if you're a believer in glory, in the new creation, when, when all is made right, you'll be able to look back on it, and I promise you that somehow you will actually give thanks to God for what you went through, because you'll see that in His perfect plan, it was working out for His glory, and it was all for your good, and you'll praise Him for it. So we've seen the command, the warning, the explanation here for why it is that we are to do this, the, essentially the, uh, the reasoning behind his thinking in verses 4 and 5, explaining how rulers fit in to God's grand plan, remembering that even they are servants of his who carry out his wrath. Therefore, verse 5, we come to a motivation. Look at it. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Why do those who are submitting to the authorities do so? They do so because there is a very real wrath of God that comes down in this world and in the next. Uh, there is a very real justice that will never be avoided. And there is a real blessing in living your life day in, day out, with a clean conscience. Submitting to the authority of God is one of the ways that we know that we are not living in open rebellion against Him, so that we don't have that nagging feeling that, that we have taken something into our own hands. We, we've crossed the line, we've done something that we shouldn't have, we, 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 we've wrestled the control away from God and tried to exercise it ourselves. I mean, how many examples are there in the Scriptures of people that have done that, impatiently stepped in to do what God had said He will do in His timing? Abraham has promised a son through Sarah, and both of them impatiently move ahead, and they say, you know what? God is late. God has forgotten us. A Abram, you, you go and you sleep with Hagar, and, and you produce an heir through her. Saul is told to, to wait for Samuel to come for the sacrifices to be offered, but Samuel takes too long, and, and the people are beginning to, to walk away from Saul, and Saul sees his power eroding. So Saul says, bring the animal here. I'll take care of it. I'll do the sacrifice myself. Only to have Samuel arrive at just the right dramatic moment, isn't it? He says, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? And he says to Saul, because of your impatience, the kingdom has been ripped away from you. Remember that? How many times do people in their impatience try to do what they think God wants to be done only to realize that God was delaying for a reason? Christ delayed for a reason so that his friend Lazarus would die in order that he might show up to resurrect him. When you are tempted to be impatient, don't violate your own conscience by taking the law into your own hands. That would be the teaching. Now, there's also a, an illustration here, so let's look at that in verses 6 and 7. He says, for the, same, for the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing, and so to each person you pay 
You pay what is owed. You pay your taxes. You pay the revenue. You pay the respect. You pay the honor. He uses this as the application. This is kind of what it boils down to. He goes, all right, so if I'm to trust God to, to defend me and I'm to submit to the authorities that he establishes, these authorities that he's established are actually financed through the taxes that he allows them to impose on me in order to maintain them. And therefore, when I pay those taxes, I should pay them really out of gratitude to God for the system of government that he has given me, though flawed because of the justice, at least on a human level, that it brings as exercised by him through those people. So when those taxes are paid, when that revenue is paid, when that honor is given, when anything that is owed to them is given to them, it is given not just to them, but it is given ultimately to the Lord. The next time you are pulled over by a police officer for some sort of infraction, can you give thanks to that police officer for pulling you over? Now this might be a way to get out of the ticket as well, but could you give thanks? Thank you for, for pulling me over. Now, that would, that would definitely be something they weren't used to. Why are you thanking me for pulling? Thank you for um, exercising the authority that the holy, righteous God has granted to you and that you are able to do because my taxes pay your salary. I mean, you can say something like that <laughs> because, you know, as much as we maybe not aren't thrilled about getting pulled over, you know what? That very same police officer when he shows up at your house because you've been robbed as somebody you certainly are going to be thankful to see, aren't you? You know, it's all perspective, right? Sometimes the authority comes down on us and we resent it, but when that authority is needed by us, we sure are grateful it's there. And you can be thankful that you live in a country and at a time where as a general rule, you are able to live in relative peace and safety. We can give thanks to God for that. And therefore, when the taxes are paid and the revenue is given, when the respect is shown to those who have authority, when honor is given to them, it is ultimately an honor and a respect that is given to God for his perfect outworking of the system to which we can submit when putting our trust in him and not repaying evil for evil. So that's where it fits. That's what it means. Now, how does it apply? Now, this is a little bit different because what I'd like to do is um, give you an example from the Old Testament Scriptures. So go back to Exodus chapter 1. It was part of the Scripture reading this morning. As a general rule, we are not wrestling with obeying the authorities around us. Most of us do not have a penchant towards vigilante justice. Not because we're particularly godly, but because we have very few reasons to even want it. The greatest battle that we face today is not so much the active unrighteousness of a government, but the passive permissiveness of an unrighteous government. As we come up on the near 50 years since Roe v. Wade, we have almost five decades of systematic, legalized murder, 62 million eternal souls murdered in this nation. Should you be outraged by that? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's nothing that you can think about that would be other than horror over the systematic murder of the unborn. 
That's a permission that a government has granted its citizens. And it's one that we should, in every way that we can, register our disapproval of and work through the means that God has given us in order to change that. While you know, if you've been at this church for any length of time, uh, I don't take political positions and I don't preach political sermons, but this is not a political issue. It's a moral issue. Scripture is absolutely clear. And by God's grace, we still live in a place where you are able, actually by order of the very government itself, to voice your opinion on matters and to cast your vote and to have your voice heard. And it ought to be in the defense and protection of those who cannot protect themselves. Passive permission, though, is something a little bit different than actively ordering it. We have examples here in the Old Testament of a leader who is actively ordering the destruction of babies. And I want to look at three examples of people who disobeyed. Because there is a point in time where this authority that we've talked about today that seems so universally to be obeyed is an authority that you actually, by divine decree, must disobey. There are times where you do not submit to the authority. There are times where you do not obey the government. There are times where, where you do not actually fulfill what it says in Romans 13 to the letter because when authority bumps up against injustice, believers have a decision to make. Those who decide if they're going to follow God or they're going to follow man. Are they going to fear God or are they going to follow man? And we have examples here in Exodus of women, women who decided to fear God and not fear man. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shifra and the other Pu'ah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. In those days, the children were born at home. Midwives would be there to help the mothers to give birth to these children. And at the time of their birth, they were to take the child, and it was customary in those days, if the child was unwanted, to plunge it into a bucket of water. And this is what the midwives were instructed to do. That was what the authorities commanded. It's an unambiguous law. It's not like some of the laws today where you've got to go back and read it, make sure it's constitutional, and does it apply, and it gets, goes up to the courts, and it, they decide whether or not it's legal. No, this was a decree that came from the king, and there was no other way to interpret it. You either obeyed or you disobeyed. But the midwives, verse 17, feared God. Please note that, first of all, before you disobey any law, you ask yourself, do I fear God by disobeying this, or do I just satisfy myself? But they feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. You see, they took a risk, and they got caught. I don't for a moment think that the midwives did this, and no one found out about it. The very fact that Pharaoh calls them back says, You got caught. I know what you did. At that moment, Pharaoh could have had them killed. But he brings them in, and he questions them. He interrogates them. And he says, why have you done this? And their response to Pharaoh, verse 19, the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are very vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. 
Really? <laughs> I mean, you, you've got you to respect their courage here, isn't it? These midwives are like, Psh, I don't know. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And all these years of midwifery, we show up, kids there. <laughs> Nothing we can do about it. Can't kill them now. Did they lie? Well, they certainly didn't tell the whole truth, did they? Did they deceive? Well, whose team are they on? This is a war. It's a war for righteousness. It's a war for justice. It's a war for life. They fear God. They say, God, I'm going to choose life, and I'm going to put the consequences in your hands. Notice what they don't do. They don't pull an ehud. They don't hide a dagger on their left side and plunge it into Pharaoh's belly. They don't take some active role in killing the one who is issuing the order. Instead, they simply refuse to obey the order, and they take whatever consequences come. Accepting the consequences is a key aspect in any time you consider civil disobedience. It's one thing to disobey. It's another thing to disobey and get caught for it and pay the price. Lots of people love to disobey the order. It's a great way to get publicity. It's a great way to be elevated in the eyes of some people. It's a great way to become a hero, like, oh yeah, you really stood up for the truth there on that one. You're, you're, you're a tough guy. It's very different after years and years of being in prison for that. The real people who stand up out of a fear of God do so not for the acclaim of men, not so they can get the accolades of man, not so they can get promoted on social media, but so that if need be, they'll do the time or give up their life. That's what Daniel did. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. That's what Esther did. Frankly, that's even what uh, Rahab did, willing to pay, pay the penalty. So king of Egypt calls them in, tells them that they've done this. They give their story in verse 20. So God dealt well with them as the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. You see, God honored their obedience. Some might say, well, did God honor their deception? Did God honor their lie? The text doesn't say that God honored their lie. The text says that God honored their fear of him, honored their obedience, honored their choice to preserve the lives of these little ones no matter what happened. Then Pharaoh, in response to that, commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This brings us to our second hero in the story. Look at chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. This is Jochebed. This is Moses' mom. Moses' mom disobeyed. The order was very clear. Kill. Kill. And she says, no. Three months she hid him. Three months she cared for this child. She looked after him as long as she could hide him, as long as she could protect him. But there comes a point where the child could no longer be hidden. She was going to be discovered. He was going to be killed. And so she trusts the Lord. And when she could no longer hide him, she took a basket made of bulrushes, dabbed it with this waterproofing around it, and put the child 
in it, place it among the reeds of the riverbank along the Nile. And his sister, Miriam, who we'll find out later, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So you have the midwives disobeying the order to kill these children. You have Jochebed disobeying the order to kill her own son. You have Miriam complicit in the whole scheme to keep Moses alive. And now you have perhaps the most interesting detractor of all, the most interesting character in the story who disobeys the law of Pharaoh, and that is someone from Pharaoh's own household. Now, we don't have her by name here, but she is one of the unsung heroes of the story. I don't know why we so often forget the fact that this daughter comes to the water to bathe, and if she was going to respect and honor the authority of her father, if she was going to hold high the laws of Pharaoh, she certainly would not in the face of all of her women that were caring for her, as well as the Hebrews that she called upon for help, disrespect him so grossly by not only allowing this male child to live, but adopting the male child and bringing it into her household. Isn't that astonishing? Like, what a spectacular disobedience. I mean, what a spectacular rejection. May she be honored for her disobedience. You see, she didn't do it out of fear of the Lord. I I think this is just something that God ordained that we might see that even among the pagans, he can work to do his miraculous things that he plans for his people. So, So she comes along and she won't even be party to it. Verse 5, now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. She opened it and she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. She knows it's a Hebrew child. This wasn't a mistake. She didn't think one of the Egyptians accidentally left the basket there. She knew this was a Hebrew child. She knew this was a ploy to save his life. She knew it was a male child. She felt compassion, not because she was a God-fearer, not because she was secretly an Israelite, but because God ordained that she would have compassion. May we just remember that from time to time, God ordains that even the pagan enemies of this world who seem to be set against us are infused with a compassion or sympathy or an empathy Because God directs every single heart, believer and unbeliever, and there are times, like when Nehemiah stood before Cyrus, when even the unbeliever, even the enemy of God, will be turned by God in order to do something for the good of his children. And so this is what happens, verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, go. So here, Miriam, she's a co-conspirator, Moses' big sister. And so she says, go, do that. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now, I have a feeling that Jochebed didn't show up and say, oh, I'll be happy to nurse him because he's mine anyway. I'm sure that there was some level of misinformation here, some level of deception, you might say. Some sort of plan was put in place where clearly it wasn't known that she was the mother of the child. But isn't God's providence wonderful? That in the midst of all of this, he turns the heart of this pagan princess. He 
causes her to not only rescue Moses, but also employ Moses' own mother to look after the child, and then brings both into the home. And when the child grew up, weaned from his mother, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. I think about Hannah bringing little Samuel into the temple, giving him over to be raised by Eli in the temple. Isn't that a heartbreaking story? Even if you're not a real soft-hearted person, even if you're, you know, kind of tough and hard to get to, just imagine the narrative, and I'm way off on a tangent now, but it's all right. I just, this part of the narrative always, always moves me. Like every year she goes up with a new garment for him that she's made, just a little bit bigger each year. I mean, imagine the, the, the fact that this mom every year goes up and visits that child and here's a new ephod for you. You know, it's a size four this year, you know. Shows up and he's growing faster than she thought. And let me just uh, go back and adjust this a little. Hands him over. Jochebed does the same thing with Moses. Hands him over to Pharaoh's daughter to be raised as a prince of Egypt. Did she have any idea what God would do through Moses? I don't think so. Do any of us know what God's going to do? in his kind providence. But in his providence, God was was raising up a redeemer. Raising up a redeemer for those people. Protected in his infancy. Handed over in his youth. Dedicated to God. And set out to liberate his people. The same way Christ did that for us. Protected by his mother. Handed over into a brutal world laying down his life as a deliverance for those who would place their hope in him. He's named Moses here. She gives him a name that sounds like the Hebrew word to draw out because I drew him out of the water. Romans 13 fits within a big context. It's one of the ways in which we demonstrate our trust in God. It's clear enough to understand because it means that us and our adversaries alike must submit to that authority established by him. But it's applied here in a a very practical way on a Sunday like this as we consider the fact that sometimes we have to trust God to work even through authorities that are not aligned with him and his purposes as a demonstration of our confidence in him to do what is right, to bring deliverance in his due time and to manifest our fear in the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, as we meditate on these truths this morning, I pray that you would comfort our hearts with this reality that as believers we can put our full hope and faith and trust in you. We don't need to take the law into our own hands. We don't need to worry about whether or not justice ultimately will be served. We don't even need to concern ourselves with the outcome of what unbelievers do. Because every aspect of every life in every part of this world is ordained by you for your own purposes, beginning to end. We praise you for your sovereignty, your absolute sovereignty. That in every single situation, you are at work orchestrating it perfectly 
into whatever will bring you the most glory. We thank you, Father, for courageous women and men who have stood up to injustice, who have chosen to fear God instead of fearing man, who have been prepared to receive from any human authority whatever consequences come. We confess, Lord, that it is extraordinarily rare in our day and age for us to imagine a situation where such a stand would have to be taken, but it is not difficult for us to imagine in the near future where we might need to. And so I pray you would strengthen us now during times of peace so that we can honor you during times of war. Father, we thank you for the governing authorities in our world, that you have allowed us to live in a country that has a military, that exercises the sword abroad, that we might be protected at home. We thank you for a government that though we can all say is incompetent in so many areas, at least in terms of managing the overall state of affairs and protecting us from descending into utter chaos and anarchy are accomplishing that purpose. For a legal system that generally works in favor of those who are innocent. We lift up in particular to you today the decisions that are going to come before the nine judges who in our country at this time are so influential and ask that your perfect will would be done that we would, as your followers and children and servants, receive even from them the decision knowing that it ultimately comes from you, but we do appeal to you before the very throne of grace that you would intercede as you have for thousands of years of recorded human history and that you would act and that by your strong arm you would rescue that you, that azer, helper, rescuer, would deliver those who cannot deliver themselves. And that by every just and legal means necessary, you would move in the hearts of your people to participate. Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the body that you've assembled here and pray that you would continue to feed us and lead us, bless us and keep us, heal us, restore us, and give us all the good graces that we need to live out our days in peace and joy and happiness, looking ahead to the day when you will come back and you will make all things right. For we pray these things in your name. Amen.